You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is Amanda Hahn. Hi, I'm Matt McFarlane, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. Imagine my joy when my accountant told me that I owed zero taxes on my rental property income. Apparently, there was this magical thing called depreciation, which allowed me to collect thousands of dollars worth of rent all year long and pay exactly zip. Zilch. Nada. At the moment, at least. Fast forward 10 years later, and I had tapped out of the real estate game. Exhausted by COVID and difficult tenants, I liquidated everything. And remember all that wonderful depreciation I took? It effectively lowered the cost basis of my properties, and I was in for a mighty surprise when I got my tax bill this time around. The capital gains were higher than I expected. Now, of course, I've oversimplified. Those capital gains were taxed at a lower rate than the ordinary income it would have been taxed as up front. And there were some advanced techniques I could have used to even lower my bill further. But how is your average investor to know? Today, we talk the five basic rules to help you crack the tax code and some advanced techniques when it comes to the tax-busting powers of real estate. Amanda Hahn and Matt McFarlane are CPAs and tax strategists who specialize in helping people use real estate to save massive amounts in taxes and keep their hard-earned money. Amanda is a third-generation investor and grew up around real estate. Matt graduated from UCLA and has a master's in taxation from USC and is also a certified specialist in plan giving at a big four accounting firm. They are authors of the highly rated book, Tax Strategies for the Savvy Real Estate Investor, and they have been featured in many prominent publications. Amanda and Matt, welcome to Earn and Invest. Amanda, let me start with you. Talk to me about your reaction surrounding the Donald Trump tax return fiasco. I'm not talking politically here, but there was a time, right, when he finally came forward with his tax returns, or maybe he was forced to. And there was quite a hubbub of people saying, oh, my gosh, he paid almost zero taxes. How could this be legal? Tell me about your reactions. Oh, wow. Well, well, first of all, I'm really excited to be here. And I love that you just throw us into the fire with a <laughs> <laughs> with a question like that. Um, you know, I know uh, very difficult to talk about that without the politics of it. But politics aside, right, whether you love him or you hate him. Um, it's definitely an example of how anyone could make the tax code work in their favor. Being able to make a lot of money and pay very little to no taxes are just some of the strategies or loopholes that is currently allowed by the government. And, and you know, real estate is one of those asset classes that you were talking about earlier, where the law allows us to take some of these seemingly unfair but legal uh, tax deductions to offset all of the rental income that we're earning. So, you know, a lot of Americans hear people or hear their CPAs tell them the more money you make, the more taxes you pay. Donald Trump's tax return is a great example of why that statement is not always the case. Matt, let's talk about that further, because it seems to me a lot of people don't really understand how these things happen. In one of your books, you say, I quote, tax laws convoluted and getting more complicated every day. Why is our tax laws so crazy complicated? Well, that's a great question. It's, uh, you know, it begs, <laughs> begs the question sometimes as whether it should be simpler, right? But um you know, I think the government, they've uh, written the tax code in such a way to incentivize people to take advantage of certain deductions, you know, that are, they think are, my, you know, my take on it is the deductions are, or things are put in place to to incentivize investments in certain areas, or they want, you know, they want people to buy real estate, they want people to start businesses, uh, because it helps the economy, obviously, as a whole. So Donald Trump and all those other people like him, you know, they're just taking advantage of those incentives that are out there that you know you can utilize depreciation to offset your your rental income and not pay not have to pay taxes on it or use that to offset other income and things of that nature so they're just taking advantage of the way the tax code is written and it's uh it's you know everyday investors all over the place can do the same thing it doesn't have to be just you don't have to have six eight ten zeros behind your numbers you know so Amanda, let me get this straight. You're telling me the tax code is not just meant to collect money but actually to incentivize behavior 
<laughs> yeah, of course. That's the whole purpose, right? Is the government wants people to do certain things, whether that's provide housing or provide better housing or to start businesses. These are things that are designed to stimulate the economy, doing what they want you to do. Why is the tax code so complicated? Because there are, every time you come out with a tax benefit, there are going to be people who take advantage of it. Um, and real estate investors are some of the most creative people we know. So are business owners. And so when when <laughs> once a loophole comes into place, now they have to change the code or the regulations to say, okay, in the future, how can we prevent this type of loophole from existing so that, you know, the 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 tax savings are not spent in a way which is not what the government intended. So it kind of snowballs into, you know, larger and more complex tax codes. Matt, I could imagine people listening right now and they're saying, well, I'm no Donald Trump, right? I'm no billionaire. Are these advantages things that the non-wealthy can use too? Or is this really for people with very complex real estate dealings? No, there's 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 so many things that the, you know, we call it the everyday investor that the non-multi-billionaire can take advantage of. I mean, there's certain things, obviously, that Trump or other people like him that might be more advanced things that they're doing that, you know, the everyday investor may not need to take advantage of. But for the most part, there's a ton of things that the everyday investor can take advantage of that, uh, like I said, don't have to be, you know, making a million, the billion, whatever number. They just need to, you know, be proactive and talk to their tax advisor about their situation, maybe tweak their fact patterns a little bit to take advantage of some stuff like that. Amanda, there's this wonderful quote in your book also from Judge Learned Hand. He once said that, Quote, in America, there are two tax systems, one for the informed and one for the uninformed. Both are legal. It makes me think of our tax preparers, right? Are all tax preparers created equal? I mean, does your general tax preparer understand some of these more complicated tax moves that can be made, especially with real estate? Well, yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right that uh, tax preparers are not all created equal. And it's really, really important as taxpayers to know and make sure that you are working with a tax advisor who understands and specializes in your specific industry. So if you're in the business of real estate investing, you need to have a tax advisor who understands real estate. If you are in the business of um, you know, cryptocurrency, then you need to work with a tax person who specializes in that part of it. We were just talking about how the tax code is um, you know, complicated and getting more complicated day by day. So even for tax advisors, it's really difficult for any one person to say, I'm a specialist in everything tax related, right? It's someone we call like jack of all trades. If you say, hey, I can do all types of stuff in tax, um, that probably means you're not super, super excellent at one of the specialty niches. So yeah, definitely um, having a niche specializing in something is important when you're looking at your own tax advisor. So Matt, in a moment, we're going to talk about the five basic rules to help you crack the tax code. And after that, we're going to go into some specifics about real estate itself. But you guys specifically are real estate experts. Can you think of any investment other than real estate that this that's this tax efficient? I mean, it hits me that you can just do so many amazing things with real estate. Is there anything else out there like this? That's a great question. Um, I think, as you know, Dio, we we do we are real estate tax experts. I mean, you probably 85, 90% of our clients do real estate, whether it's you know on the side or runs the gamut of doing real estate full time. So and I think our experience. I, I we haven't seen any other thing other than you know real estate is probably the best from a real estate tax savings perspective. I mean, there's advantages to starting your own business from a tax perspective. There's advantages to investing in oil and gas. There's you know various charitable gifting strategies you can do that don't involve real estate. Um, things you can do with you know stocks and mutual funds to to some extent. But you know I think from a thirty thousand foot level, investing in real estate. In our in our opinion, it's probably the best opportunity you can do from a tax savings perspective and building wealth and generating cash flow and all that good stuff at the same time. I want to pull things back a little, Amanda, and I want to look at some of these basic rules that you've laid out in your book about how to crack the tax code. Number one, you say, don't be afraid. And so the tax code is like 2,600 pages. <laughs> so help me understand how your average can, person cannot be afraid, who can follow that rule number one, of feeling comfortable with this system that seems complicated. 
Uh, it actually might be more than 2,600 pages now. You know, that <laughs> that's what we writ was a few wrote was a few years ago. So it could could be even more after the CARES Act and yeah. COVID. <laughs> um, you know, I think it, it, that's a really great question. So as everyday taxpayers, uh, I'm assuming this is the person we're talking to is not a CPA themselves. The goal in saving taxes is not for you to become a tax specialist for you to ever read the tax code and know all the laws. Really, your main to do is to make sure that you understand the basics of what's possible. So what are some of the things that you uh, can deduct against your real estate or business income? Asking yourself the right questions before you spend money. Uh, And that's pretty much it, right? And the second is making sure that you keep your tax advisor updated on what you are doing. Because it, it could as be as simple as a two-sentence email or five-minute phone call, right? Hey, Matt, I'm thinking about selling this property because of COVID. What are some of the things I can do to reduce my taxes, right? So it's not up to Doc G to figure out what are all the strategies, but you're responsible simply to tell your tax person, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Can you help me navigate and tell me what my options are or how can I reduce taxes before I sell my property? Matt, Amanda brings up a good point, right? I feel like a lot of us make all of our moves and then call our tax preparer at the end and say, okay, what are we going to do with this? The preemptive call, is that something people are just not comfortable with? I don't know if it's that they're not comfortable. I'm Maybe some people, right? But I, I think a lot of times it's just they don't, it doesn't even cross their mind that, that they should be doing that, right? They don't know that that's probably the best course of action. Because like you said, I think a lot of people just kind of, everyone's got their own stuff going on. Everyone's busy, right? So it's kind of like, we're doing this and we'll deal with it after the fact, right? And, you know, unfortunately, taxes get put into that bucket sometimes where people are calling, not even on April 10th, they're calling, you know, uh, two months after they sold a property in the same tax year that the options may be more limited than they've had. They called us, you know, two months before they sold the property, right? So it does run the gamut, but I think it's a lot of times it's just people don't realize that they should be having that conversation, uh, not necessarily scared of having that conversation, but it can be as easy as Amanda mentioned, just sending an email. Hey, what are the things I need to think about? You know, what is my tax going to be? And are you comfortable with that number? Or if not, what what can we do to change it? Amanda, we talking about the five basic rules to help you crack the tax code. Number one was don't be afraid. Number two, which you touched on a little bit, is know the basics is there a set list of basics like that anyone can look at and say, okay, these are the kind of basic things I need to keep in mind on a year-to-year basis? You know, I think one of the main reasons that a lot of people overpaying their taxes is not really understanding what they can write off against their income. And so if we're talking about a real estate investor or a business owner, it's really important to understand that you can take deductions for a lot of your business expenses. And by business, we don't mean legal entity. It doesn't mean like you have to have an LLC or something. Even if you're investing in your personal name or you're doing business in your personal name, a lot of times these out-of-pocket expenses could be legitimate deductions. So the best practice to get into is before you spend money on something, ask yourself, is this expense something that could be necessary and ordinary to my business or my real estate? If you think the answer is yes, or maybe yes, then keep a copy of those receipts, track those expenses, and then send them to your tax person, right? Because they're the ones who's going to be able to help you make that final determination whether something could be deductible. But if you are already not tracking or you are not asking yourself that question, then maybe your tax person never sees that expense, right? So you've already made that determination. It's not deductible. And that's when we see um, tax deductions or benefits being lost. Matt, let me bring up a basic, which I think almost everyone gets wrong or a lot of people do. I see people get excited, maybe even exhilarated when they get a bunch of money back after filing their tax return. Why is this not necessarily the right philosophy to have? Yeah, it's such a, it's such a great, great question. Great point is, uh, yeah, there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. So just kind of painting, painting the picture, you know, if you're getting a big refund back, that means you gave the IRS an interest-free loan for the most part, right? So, you know, in a perfect world, with great planning and you know planning ahead and managing your finances and things, perfect world you end up break even when you file your tax returns. You don't owe anything. You're not getting a large refund uh, because that means you've paid as much as you were supposed to, or 
if your tax was zero, you paid zero, right? But um, yeah, you getting a large refund means that you've been giving the IRS more money sooner than you needed to, or you know that you didn't need to at all, for that matter. So definitely not the uh, not the ideal situation. Yeah, it's a fine line, right? You don't want to give them too much because then you're giving them a, a interest for your loan. You don't want to give them too little because eventually then you're going to get fined. So you really have to kind of meet there in the middle. Amanda, let's talk about rule number three, know when to ask questions. You know, for me, a better question here actually is not knowing necessarily always when to ask questions, but who to ask questions to. You know, there are answers all over the internet. We've got friends, we've got friends who tell us what they've done with their with their taxes. And then we have our accountant who we don't want to be calling literally every day. How do we know what information to trust? <laughs> That's such a great question. So what information to trust when it comes to taxes specifically? I would say if you have a competent tax advisor, that's the person you ask. You know, sometimes we have clients or investors will come and say, hey, you know, I know you said we don't need an LLC, but my realtor told me I have to have an LLC to write off my expenses. So then my question is, oh, great. Is your realtor also a CPA? Do they do taxes? Right. So I think you're exactly right. Who are you asking the questions to? The Internet has a lot of information, a lot of great information. The question there, though, is, is the information applicable to your own situation? Even the people listening to our podcast today, right? We might have uh, talk about strategies that apply to one investor, but might be a very bad recommendation for another investor, depending on their personal profile. And so I think it, it's great to always get information and kind of learn as much as you can. But ultimately, before you implement any of that information, you want to make sure you run it by your team of advisors, because they're the people who know your, your specific scenario. They'll be able to tell you whether that makes sense for you or not. Matt, we're talking about the five basic rules to help you crack the tax code. Number four, plan ahead. And I think this is a key question here that that we should really talk about. What's the difference between tax planning and tax preparation? Because I feel like sometimes people confabulate the two. Oh, yeah, no, that, 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 that happens all the time. So I think people, they assume that whoever's preparing their returns is also doing planning for them. Just like, hey, they're just going to do that by default. And that's definitely not the case. So tax filing, tax preparation, whatever you want to call it, is really just gathering the documents and the information that summarizes what's already happened last year, right? You got all those documents and you put them together in your tax return. Your tax preparer is hopefully putting them on the right forms and it's spitting out the correct tax return to give you a summary of you know your income and expenses for the year. Whereas tax planning, so that's all after the fact, right? I mean, that's kind of, again, once you get to April 15th, there's not a lot you can do to reduce taxes for last year necessarily. But tax planning is kind of doing that proactively ahead of time. So early in the year, throughout the year, even later in the year, hey, I'm thinking about selling this property or I'm buying this property. Uh, you know, a question might, you might want to think about what is your exit strategy going to be on that property? When are you going to sell it? What tax bracket are you going to be in this year? Should we look at doing Roth conversions, that kind of thing? All that takes doing planning ahead of time so you can kind of put put the things in a row, you know, line it up so it kind of works in your favor, right? As opposed to waiting until after the fact saying, okay, here's what happened. Um, so yeah, definitely tax preparation and tax planning are two different things. Amanda, so I'm listening to this saying, okay, I may have more complicated investments this year. Maybe I'm dealing with real estate buying or selling. Maybe I'm dealing with some other complex investments. I'm hearing you talk about tax planning. What is a reasonable amount of times to actually have a face-to-face with your CPA in a yearly basis? Like, So obviously you don't just want to meet them right before tax prep time, right? So how often should you be meeting your CPA? That's a great question. So when you're meeting with your CPA right before tax prep time or during tax prep time, that's actually not planning, right? Like Matt said, that's when you're doing tax returns for last year. So tax planning happens throughout the year before you you know, implement transactions. 
the number of times that you're supposed to meet with them really depends for each investor. And even with one investor, it might differ depending on what you have going on. So, you know, you, for example, um, this year, if you're selling a lot of real estate, you might be meeting with your tax person frequently, right? Before you sell one property or two properties, you might be talking about ways to defer the taxes. Or if you're buying new real estate, you might be meeting with them pretty frequently right up to the closing or even right after closing if you're doing rehab and things like that. Uh, and then thereafter, you might have four, five, six, seven months where you don't have to meet with them at all because there's nothing much going on. You're just getting cash flow from your properties. So I would say, you know, as frequently as your transactions dictate is how you know often you should be meeting with your tax person. And again, it change, could change throughout the year for any given investor. And finally, Matt, number five, make tax planning part of your daily life. Okay, this sounds a touch stressful to me. Like, I try not to think about my taxes often because I get a little anxious. I get a little worried. Am I doing it right? Are there going to be lots of taxes this year? But you guys are saying the exact opposite. Like, make this part of your normal thinking. How do we do that? And, and how do we not get anxious? Well, so yeah. So first thing you do is you wake up, open your eyes, and the first thing you should think about is taxes. <laughs> like, what am I going to do for tax planning today? That's exactly what I do. Um, yeah, exactly. That's what everyone should be doing, yes. Uh, no, I mean, what we what we what we're meaning by that is just whether you're a real estate investor um, or, you know, you have a business in the, in the common sense of owning a business. You know, a lot of real estate investors, for example, don't think about themselves as business owners. So I think that's part of the part of the challenge, part of the part of the problem, if you will, is everybody should be, you know, if you're an investor, you have your own business, you should be thinking of yourself as a business owner. And when you're going into day-to-day transactions or making decisions for your business, you should always be thinking about taxes in the, in the back of your mind. It doesn't have to be the first thing, but it should be thinking about taxes. You think, how does this affect me from legally or asset protection standpoint and getting your other team of advisors involved as well? Yeah. And it's really interesting. You said you try not to think about taxes, but a lot of our clients who do a ton of transactions, specifically in real estate. And I think they've been trained pretty well by us that they love talking about taxes. They love thinking about taxes. They're pretty good about keeping us updated. And in fact, I've caught some of my clients out there when they're on podcasts or webinars and they're sort of semi-teaching tax strategies because it's now such a big part of their wealth building. You know, it's not just about making money, but it's for them, it's just as important to save money. And that's really what we mean by, you know, having that be part of your kind of habits, not to not in a stressful version. We are talking to Amanda Han and Matt McFarland. They are CPAs and tax strategists. We just finished talking about the five basic rules to help you crack the tax code. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how we can use real estate to modify our tax returns to decrease the amount of taxes we pay. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Hey, everybody, just wanted to remind you that my book, Taking Stock, is still on sale on Amazon. Go to earnandinvest.com slash book. If you have bought the book, do me a favor, go to Amazon and leave a rating. Even if you just leave a five-star rating, of course, I'd love to see your comments. But if you don't feel comfortable doing comments, even just the five-star rating helps. 
I've got about 130, a little bit more ratings there at this point, but the more the better. I am trying to get this message out to as many people as possible. So if you enjoyed the book, please go rate it on Amazon. Please also tell friends and family if this is a book you think that could help them. Let them know. Shoot them the Amazon link. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash book. I would love to share this message with as many people as possible. And you all are my best advocates. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking to Amanda Hahn and Matt McFarland. They are the authors of Tax Strategies for the Savvy Real Estate Investor. And we are talking about some advanced real estate and tax techniques. First and foremost, Amanda, you wrote this book immediately following some of the largest tax legislation over 30 years. This was in 2017, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, and more recently, the CARES Act. Talk to me a little bit about how often our tax code is changing. (laughs) Yeah, how often is our tax code changing? Gosh, well... I mean, the code itself doesn't change all that often, but what changes often are kind of the regulations and the rulings that are part of our decision-making process in terms of tax planning. And so you can imagine the regulations, court cases are coming out, you know, probably on a daily basis, and those things impact how we do tax planning. Uh, What's really interesting is one of the struggles that we had to face in terms of writing our tax book is how do we write it in such a way so that the content itself is somewhat evergreen, right? Like you're saying, if tax law changes tomorrow, then does it make the book itself outdated? And so we tried really hard to do that, where the book itself has a lot of the pillar strategies that don't change from time to time. And the way we update our audience is through podcasts like yours, where we can share some of the latest and greatest in what came out you know, last week or last month or last six months. So let's talk about some of those pillars, Matt. One of them is what I mentioned in my intro, depreciation. For those who have never experienced this before, tell us a little bit about what depreciation is and why it's so powerful when it comes to real estate. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, depreciation is probably one of our top favorite incentives, loopholes, deductions you can take, you know, from from a real estate investor's perspective and from a tax planning perspective. But in essence, really what it is, it's a, uh, we like to call it kind of like a paper write-off that the IRS gives you. So the IRS is allowing you to write off a part of your rental property every year as if it's going down in value, it's depreciating from normal wear and tear, even if it is actually going up in value in you know a lot of markets recently, right? So they're letting you take this kind of wear and tear. Uh, we call it a paper write-off because you know, you buy a $500,000 building, you may not be paying $500,000 cash for it. You might be paying $100,000 cash for it and getting a loan for it. But your depreciation calculation is going to start at $500,000. And um, so you're getting this kind of expense or deduction or tax return every year for money that you're not necessarily paying out of your pocket every year. So it's a great way to, you know, as we alluded to in the opening, is to a great way to shelter your cash flow from uh, from taxes every year. So to put it simply, I buy a property, I rent it out, I collect $20,000 worth of rent, I have $5,000 worth of expenses, I have a net profit of $15,000. In the normal world, we'd have to pay taxes on that $15,000. However, you can take as a write-off the depreciation of the property and use that to decrease the taxes you have to pay or even get rid of the taxes you have to pay for the moment on that $15,000. Amanda, tell us about some of the basic rules. There's depreciation and then there's accelerated depreciation, which is like the next step forward. Am I right in saying, what is it, 27.5 years? So normally when you have a property, you can depreciate it over a set number of years that the government states. And I think for a general property, it's something like 27.5 years. And of course, this has to be an investment property. This is not your home, right? We're talking about an investment property. Talk to us a little bit about that and then what accelerated depreciation is. Yeah, exactly. So most investors, um, you know, at least tax returns we see, will be taking regular depreciation, which is the purchase price of your building divided by 27 and a half years, right? That's kind of the slow and steady method to take depreciation. So it's basically taking one 27th, roughly, of the purchase price of that building slowly over time. 
What the government also allows us to do, though, is instead of just taking regular depreciation on the building, you can take what's called accelerated depreciation. And you do that through what we call a cost segregation study. So cost segregation study is where the investor and their CPA can work with an outside team and their specialist companies who just do cost segregation. So the cost segregation firm will come out and look at your building and say, okay, instead of this building that you bought for $100,000, let's look at what makes up this building. What are the components of the building? Maybe it's $30,000 of flooring, uh, $40,000 in specialty plumbing or drywall cabinets, countertops. And the benefit of breaking down or identifying the costs of those different units is then your tax person can take faster depreciation. So for example, you can write off your appliances faster. You can write off some of your flooring faster. So it's simply a way to say, instead of just waiting 27 and a half years to write off the whole building, let me write off more of that upfront so I can get a tax savings upfront rather than waiting over time. And Amanda, I want to make sure people understand this because I think I was a little bit sketchy on this in the beginning. Depreciation is not a tax giveaway, right? It changes the value or the cost basis of your property, right? So when you eventually do go to sell, and there's some ways we can talk about later in which you can defray this issue, but if you do go to sell and decide to cash out like I did, it means the cost basis on the property is less because you've taken depreciation. And therefore, when you sell it, you may have higher capital gains than if you had not taken that depreciation. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, exactly. So so what you're describing is the fact that if I bought a property, let's say I bought a building for $100,000, I already depreciated $20,000, right? I, I've gotten a benefit for that $20,000. So my basis is now $80,000. So when I sell the property, any sales price above $80,000 is a gain, right? So I'm not able to take that $20,000 again because I already wrote it off. And hence, what you're describing in this experience of when I sell, I had higher taxable gain because I already wrote off a lot in the years when I owned the property. So Matt, this is a pretty powerful thing, especially if you do cost segregation, you can end up depreciating more rapidly and you can have a higher number of deductions, right? So you might actually make only $10,000 of quote unquote profits through rents, but then you might have a depreciation of twenty dollars or $30,000. This brings us into a conversation of real estate professional status. So what do you do with that depreciation? Let's say your deduction is much higher than your income from that property. What happens then? So yeah, so you, you would in that situation, you would have a, you know, on that particular property, you have a net loss where your expenses exceed your income. So then the question to you, you know, to you're alluding to is how can I use that loss to offset my other income? Um, whether it's wages, interest, dividends, business income, wh- whatever it is. Now the IRS says if your income is below 150, you might be able to deduct some of that against your income. But uh, you know, once your income reaches $150,000, whether you're single or married. In order to deduct that loss against your other sources of income, you have to be a real estate professional. And there's rules that we can go into if, if you know time permits. But big picture is they they really want to incentivize the person or the investor to be really involved in real estate on a day to day basis, doing a lot of the boots on the ground, hands on stuff to take advantage of using these losses to offset other sources of income, if you will. Amanda, one thing you can do is if you're not a real estate professional, you can carry over losses till the next year. And if you have gains the next year, you can offset those. Talk to me a little bit about real estate professional status. I mean, does that mean being a realtor? (laughs) That's a great question. What is a real estate professional? It's probably one of the most misunderstood concepts when it comes to real estate taxation. So a lot of people think that you have to be licensed as a realtor or broker to be real estate professional, but that's actually not the case. So real estate professional, the term only exists in the tax world. And in the tax world, real estate professional has nothing to do with your licenses or professional designation. And so you could be, you know, a part-time teacher or a retired physician who could be a real estate professional. Tax-wise, it's based on the number of hours that you spend in real estate and the tasks that you're performing as a property owner. So um, this is something we could probably talk for eight hours about, <laughs> um, but you know, just a very quick synopsis of that. Uh, real estate professional, there are three rules to meet. First is that you are spending at least 750 hours in real estate. 
The second is that you're spending more time in real estate than your job. Okay, so if you're someone who's working full time, be very difficult. Uh, if not impossible to say you're spending more than you know 2,100 hours in real estate. So 750 more time in real estate than your job. And the third one is material participation in your long-term rentals. And that's more of what Matt was talking about earlier, where you have these boots on the ground hours. Um, typically, when we for most of our long-term rental investors, they're going under this minimum of 500 hours on the long-term rental properties that they own. Um, there are other ways to qualify for that material participation, but the vast majority of people are going under this 500-hour requirement. Yeah, so it sounds like we see this a lot with married people where one person is working a full-time job, they buy real estate together, and the other person who doesn't have a full-time job actually goes for real estate professional status. Matt, just so people are clear on this, two things. One is you kind of have to document these things, right? Because you're talking about specific hours and you need to have that presentable in case the IRS ever looks at your books. The other thing is this can change from year to year, right? I mean, it's not like you're considered a real estate professional and you're that for 10 years. Like you have to meet these requirements every year. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And it is. Uh, the test is done on an annual basis and the hours. Uh, you should definitely be documenting your hours because um, it is going to be important. If, you know, if somebody were to get audited for any reason and they wanted to ask about a real estate professional, they're going to ask you for your time log. So you're going to need to have a time log of some kind, whether it's Excel paper, an app, whatever the case may be, definitely documenting date of the activity, as much description of what you did, as much detail as the time spent on it, you know, any corroborating resources you have, like receipts, uh, flyers, whatever it is from what you did. But I mean, at the end of the day, think about the benefit of it, right? Is Again, the benefit could be is that if you're creating a loss on your rental properties, you know, let's say you did a cost segregation and you have a hundred thousand dollar loss on a rental property because the depreciation was that much more than your your income. I mean, if you're in a fifty percent tax bracket, that hundred thousand dollar deduction against your other income could save you fifty thousand dollars in taxes. Yeah. I mean, that could be a down payment on another property, right? Just to kind of keep the ball rolling. So, the benefits can be substantial. But to your point, for sure, you need to be documenting this. And again, this is one of those things you got to plan ahead with because. A lot easier to make sure you're getting the hours throughout the year than you know come April and say did I get did I meet the requirements last year you know that's almost impossible to <laughs> redo that at that point in time right so Amanda I want to move to something a little more glamorous than real estate professional status if you're like me you love watching these TV shows with the flippers and so you watch these shows and you go see them go from house to house flipping buying selling flipping. <laughs> That looks great, but you guys argue that that's probably not the most efficient thing to do tax-wise. Why? I mean, do they not get the same benefits everyone else gets when they're dealing with real estate? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not one for watching one of those uh, house flipping shows. <laughs> Matt's more of the fan. She, she likes the she likes the real the real drama ones, like Real Housewives. That kind <laughs> yeah. of stuff. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Um, but yes, from a tax, per and we do have clients who flip, uh, we have clients who wholesale, we have clients who do rentals. And the downside of fix and flip from a tax perspective is that it is considered ordinary income. And what that means is that not only are you paying federal and state income taxes, you're also paying self-employment taxes if you're flipping personally, or if you're flipping through an S corporation, you're paying payroll taxes. Uh, so that's one downside. The other downside is that because fix and flip is an active business, it's considered the, the property itself is considered inventory. And what that means is when you're doing the rehab of the property, that you're not taking depreciation like you would in a, in a regular rental property. And the third downside of fix and flip from a tax perspective is that flip properties are not eligible for a tax deferral in a 1031 exchange. So whereas when you sell a rental property, you can choose to defer the taxes if you were to do a 1031 exchange, you just can't use that type of strategy on a fix and flip. So those are the three reasons why it's not as ideal from a tax perspective. Although, again, we have clients who do it, and it could be highly profitable as a business. Matt, Amanda mentioned those magic words, the 1031 exchange. I've done one once in my lifetime, and it was kind of a pain. On the other hand, I feel like it's an incredibly powerful tool for real estate investors. Tell us what a 1031 exchange is. Yeah, it's simply, it's, it's a way to sell an existing investment or rental property 
that you're expecting to pay taxes on because you're going to have a gain on sale. It's a way to sell that, reinvest the money into a replacement property or multiple replacement properties and not have to pay taxes right now on that gain on the sale of the, you know, the property you just sold. So it's kind of a way to, uh, you know, kick the can down the road, if you will, for lack of a better term from in the, in the tax world. Which is incredibly powerful if you hold that real estate until you die and pass it on to the next generation, right? Because the cost basis steps up. In other words, it's probably one of the only very clear ways to completely avoid the taxes on the sale of a property. But the 1031 exchange, just like I found out because some of the properties that I sold, you still are carrying over those capital gains and you're still carrying over the cost basis, which means at some point, if you do sell, you may still end up paying the taxes. Amanda, one of the things I had a problem with with the 1031 is there were all these deadlines. And so I got really stressed out. I wouldn't say I went as far as buying a property I shouldn't have because of the deadlines, but so I, I wouldn't go that far. But I have to say it was pretty stressful. Tell me about some of the deadlines and why the 1031 is not just a simple thing. Yeah. So there are a couple of different rules around 1031 exchange um, in terms of deadlines. So you have 45 days from the date you sell your property to identify the replacement property or properties that you want to buy. And then you have 180 days from the date of the sale to close on the properties that you've identified. So in other words, the IRS doesn't just give you years and years and years to replace that money, right? They want you to do it within a a specified number of days. And so, so you're exactly right. We do see that it is, you know, can be somewhat stressful for investors to do that. And, and some part of that comes down to the numbers though. You know, we have clients where if they do a 1031 exchange, maybe it's helping them defer hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. So they're like, hey, I understand the stress, but I'm going to get it done uh, so that I can continue to defer, to defer the tax. And there are also things you can do to kind of help alleviate that. So from a planning perspective, right? So before you sell your property, maybe even before you list your property, one of the things to consider is let me start shopping for my replacements now, Um, especially if you're faced in the hot seller's market where you probably sell your property on the day you list it, but it might be much harder to find the ideal replacement. So you can give yourself that cushion or additional time simply by shopping first then listing your current property for sale. Matt, one of the ways maybe to get around the 1031 issue and also not have to pay huge taxes came from the 2017 law, and it's called the Opportunity Zone Program. Tell us about what that is, and is that still going to be accessible to people going into the future? Yeah, so the Opportunity Zone was created with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act at the end of 2017. In a lot of ways, it functions very similar to 1031 exchange. They definitely have their differences. But what what the government was trying to incentivize was um, people to sell existing assets. So in 1031 exchanges, for people to understand, you were selling real estate and buying real estate. In an Opportunity Zone, it they've created it for a way to people to who are going to have capital gains from could be selling real estate, but also be capital gains from selling stocks. Could be capital gains from selling a primary residence. And maybe they they have you know taxable gains on. It's a way for them to reinvest those those capital gains into property in a qualified opportunity zone, which is an area that kind of the government is wanting to incentivize people to invest into and build up. And it is it's still still available today. Some of the benefits that came out originally are are gone, but you know the big. Two big carrots are dangling is if you have gains that you want to reinvest, you don't have to pay tax on those gains right now. You don't have to pay tax on it until the end of 2026. That's one benefit. The other benefit is if you hold your replacement asset that you bought in the opportunity zone, if you hold that asset for 10 years, all the appreciation that asset can become totally tax-free. So that, you know, that can be a big carrot if somebody's planning to hold that asset for 10 years, obviously. And one of the interesting things to me, Amanda, about that is you can go from owning your own real estate and taking those capital gains and putting them into an opportunity zone fund that's managed by someone else, which I always found was very difficult with the 1031. And we don't have to get into the weeds about why that's difficult, but to go from your own piece of property 
to then 1031 into it into something like a syndication, it becomes very, very complicated and very hard to do. But with the Opportunity Zone program, that's a little bit easier. Yeah, exactly. With the Opportunity Zone, we see more people investing in syndications than in their own Opportunity Zone property. Um, and the reason is because for an Opportunity Zone tax benefit, there are a lot of other things that have to happen. Um, so those are generally pretty significant value add type of transactions. And that's the reason why we see mostly, you know, it's where investors are selling their own single family and then you know, reinvesting in larger syndication type of stuff. And what I love about Opportunity Zone, like Matt said, is just it's not limited to real estate. So even the Opportunity Zone fund itself, um, it could hold real estate assets, but it could also hold just businesses that are located in the Opportunity Zone too. So Matt, we've been talking about just a few of the topics from Tax Strategies for the Savvy Real Estate Investor, your book. Obviously, during this podcast, we can't go into the detail because there's a lot of information there. But I wanted to pull things back a little bit and just return to the basic real estate investor, Matt. How do we keep up with the rules and regulations in the new legislation? As we were talking about, you can talk to your CPA. You could do those things. But if you want to generally keep knowledgeable or keep on top of things, where can your average investor turn to keep abreast of what's happening? Yeah, I, w- I would recommend for the the kind of the everyday investor to become part of uh, real estate groups. You know, it could be it could be different real estate websites, education sites. It could be blogs. It could be investor groups that meet you know on a monthly basis in your in your local area. Uh, definitely keep your communication lines open with your not just your CPA but your other team of advisors. You know, your asset protection attorney, your state planning attorney, whatever the case may be. And obviously they should be, if they're, you know, doing their jobs and laws change, they should be at least notifying you that, hey, here's some different changes and stuff. But you also, again, need to kind of keep them up to date on what's going on in your situation as well. And Amanda, the part of the problem is often we don't know what we don't know. Talk to me about finding a good tax advisor. Are there is there a litmus test or are there specific questions we can ask to make sure we're getting connected to the right person, especially if we're really interested in real estate? Yeah. So what's the best way to find a tax advisor that actually specializes in real estate? I think most investors, when they interview people, will say, hi, do you work with real estate investors? Nine times out of 10, the CPA is going to say, yes, I work with real estate investors because they probably have at least one client who dabbles in real estate. So that in itself is not a powerful question. Um, I think one way to really gauge if someone does specialize in real estate is to ask them, you know, what are your clients doing in real estate? Right. What are some of your successful clients doing? What type of transactions? Where are they investing? What do you see as great real estate tax strategies that you're using with your clients? Um, So those really get to the heart of how much they understand real estate rather than the generic, you know, do you work with real estate investors? Well, man, Amanda, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. I really took a few things out of our conversation. One is that real estate is an incredibly potent opportunity to really decrease your taxes. Two, we're talking about tax deferral, but in many ways, we're really talking about tax savings, which can really end up being thousands and thousands of dollars. And last but not least, this isn't just something for the wealthy. Anyone who's involved in real estate or who has some money left over, even if it's in a you know, if it's in a retirement account, which you guys talk about in the book, but we didn't talk about here, anyone can get involved and reap some of these benefits of our tax code. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your lives and where can we find you? Amanda, why don't you start first? What's coming up next for you and how can people reach out to you? Yeah, well, what's coming up next? I don't know. (laughs) You know, we have a passion in um, sharing tax strategies with real estate investors. And um, I think that's up next. What we're looking ahead is just having more opportunities to be able to share what we know. Um, How can people find me? Uh, I'm mostly found on Instagram, Amanda Han CPA. Uh, That's where I share some tax tips. And you can also see pictures of our kids and what we're eating. So that's the best place (laughs) to catch up with me. And Matt, what is up next in your life? And how can people get in touch with you if they want to? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's a great question. I mean, as Amanda mentioned, you know, we're trying, we continue to try and 
build our business in such a way that we can continue to give back to the community, educate people, and um, you know, help our clients, you know, kind of keep advancing in, in the in the in the real estate tax world. So we'll be keeping an eye on you know legislation. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act just kind of came out recently. They've been talking about changing everything for a couple of years to kind of kind of see how that's going to play out over the next six months, 12 months. But yeah, the best place to find us is on our website, keystonecpa.com. Well, the book is Tax Strategies for the Savvy Real Estate Investor. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. And by having myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Amanda Hahn and Matt McFarland. That's a wrap. All right. I keep things running just for a few minutes as the after show where we talk. Um, I really appreciated your book. I mean, I think it went into a lot of detail. Obviously, things change year to year, but I thought that you guys kept things general enough that it made a lot of sense. And I think it was it helped connect some dots that I always kind of knew, but I didn't know enough detail on. But geez, it, it is complicated. There's, I mean, it's no joke. There, there are lots of rules and sub rules and reasons that you can get kind of caught up if you're not paying attention. Yeah, I think that the reason we wrote the book was because most tax books are pretty, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Pretty boring. boring. <laughs> yeah. And we just thought like, you know, if it's boring, if we found it to be boring, right? As CPAs, if we found it boring to read, how would it an everyday investor get any value out of it so we really try to present it in a way that's more story format um, where people just kind of see the benefit right with of doing things right or or the the downside of doing things wrong without planning and things like that so um i think because of that we've gotten good feedback the book is definitely not designed for cpas um it's designed for the average investor just so they get a taste of what does it mean to do tax planning and what are the benefits but i mean you're right though like we you know we've been doing this over 20 years and i feel like in the last five years and even the last two years which you know obviously was brought on by covid we all get that but the amount of changes in those last two to five years compared to what i remember the last 20 years was it's just it's perplexing it's you know stressful it's you know, I don't know. It could be that I was in my twenties, you know, twenty years ago. And I'm <laughs> the brain, not the brain works better. My patience, my patience is less. But, uh, but yeah, it's it's um, it is mind blowing the amount of complexity to it sometimes for sure. Well, we've How? been on like podcasts and stuff, right? During COVID, especially where we do a, a you know a one hour podcast, and then right when we're done, yeah, like the a... new legislation comes out. Oh, geez! And then we have to email them, say, "Hey, you know, this is all changed." So unless that was live, cut, cut minutes forty two through forty five. Yeah, it's no longer applicable. Yeah, I, I tried to make this conversation not like that. So. Um... How often do so people, obviously, I'm sure you get people who are real estate investors and come to you and say, hey, I'm doing this already. How do I decrease my taxes? How often is it the other way around where people say, look, I have huge, a huge tax load. How can I get into real estate to modify or decrease my taxes? I mean, do you have people come at it from that angle a lot? Yeah, we definitely do. Um, uh, and that's the crazy part. And that's that's what we love. You know, like we were saying earlier, just spreading the message and just teaching people that it's possible. Um, but yeah, we recently just, you know, we had a couple of people who are, you know, physicians or people in the entertainment industry who are selling their business or getting large gain. And they're like, hey, I heard about you from so and so. And I would like to do real estate to save on taxes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, no, it makes sense, right? I mean, 